This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like and is incredibly urgent right now is If God is a Virus by Seema Yasmin. Merging documentary poetry from the epicenter of an epidemic with the story of viruses and the evolution of humanity, If God is a Virus gives voice to the infected and the virus. Based on original reporting from West Africa and the United States, and the poet's experiences as a doctor and journalist, If God is a Virus charts the course of the largest and deadliest Ebola epidemic in history, telling the stories of Ebola survivors, outbreak responders, journalists, and the virus itself. Documentary poems explore which human lives are valued, how editorial decisions are weighed, what role the aid industrial complex plays in crises, and how medical myths and rumor can travel faster than microbes. If God is a Virus by Seema Yasmin. Out now from Haymarket Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. In our high-tech capitalist moment, everything seems so instantaneous and ethereal. But in reality, today's world system relies on an absolutely massive quantity of finished goods, parts, and commodities being transported by ship across the oceans and seas and through straits, gulfs, and canals. Lala Khalili analyzes that entire system and the prime place of maritime trade within it by focusing on the Arabian Peninsula and how a long colonial history helped make the region's present-day reality. The Suez Canal, transnational labor organizing and anti-colonial nationalism, the ecological limits of capitalism, what the hell is up with Dubai, we look at all of that and more discussing Khalili's remarkable book, Sinews of War and Trade, Shipping and Capitalism in the Arabian Peninsula. Before we get started, the notion that any sort of social contract governs the world that we live in today is, of course, an absolutely obscurantist myth. That said, The Dig does sort of operate on just such a contract. We provide every episode for free, regardless of your ability to pay That's important to us, and the way we're able to do that is because those of you listeners who can afford to contribute do so at patreon.com slash the dig. We tried this out as an experiment when we started four years ago, and miraculously, it works. We don't have to pay while anything to coerce donations from you, but for it to continue to work, we need you to make a contribution now if you can afford to make one. And so if that's you, please take one quick moment and navigate your web browser to patreon.com slash the dig. We also, depending on how much you contribute, we have books, mugs, and tote bags to send you as a thank you. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Okay, here's Lala Khalili, a professor of international politics at Queen Mary University of London and the author of Heroes and Martyrs of Palestine, The Politics of National Commemoration. 
Time in the Shadows, Confinement and Counterinsurgencies, and the book we're discussing today, Sinews of War and Trade, Shipping and Capitalism in the Arabian Peninsula. Lala Khalili, welcome to The Dig. Very happy to be with you. Nice to see you. You write, quote, Maritime trade, logistics, and hydrocarbon transport are the clearest distillation of how global capitalism operates today. And also that, quote, the ports of the peninsula seem to manifestly crystallize the confluence of military naval interest, capital accumulation, and labor. Let's start out with a big picture question about the sort of book that you wrote. Why today are the shipping industry and the Gulf region so critical to understanding capitalist world system, geopolitics and economics? Excellent question. So I think the two things are slightly different answers and require slightly different answers. So let me go on ahead and start with the question of why global trade, global maritime trade. In part, I think because precisely because global trade today is such an incredibly diffuse business, um, capital coming from one direction, manufacturing coming from another, services emerging, uh, still a third location. And then there being this kind of a substrate of old uh, practices of um, engineering standards, of accounting standards, of legal standards, of all sorts of things that have come together in a confluence of history and politics and and its uh, socioeconomic relations, that maritime transport ends up being a really good lens to understand contemporary capitalism. Because, Because it is so complex, because it is so transnational, because it takes place in the interstices of all of these other kinds of national, nationally imagined, nationally operated forms of capitalism, manufacture, et cetera, et cetera. So, so it's, it's very fundamental material transnationalism is what makes it such a good lens through which to understand contemporary global capitalism today. So that is a broader response, and that would apply to shipping anywhere in the Pacific, through the Suez Canal, etc. What makes the um, Arabian Peninsula particularly interesting, and in fact, the reason that it became what I wanted to study was because what struck me when I started the project was that Jabal Ali port, which is the port of Dubai and an enormously huge port, uh, it is I think eighth or ninth largest container port in the world. It is the only port that appears on the Journal of Commerce's top 10 list of ports, uh, which is not in East or Southeast Asia. Now, also, the Arabian Peninsula is not Egypt. It's not Turkey. It's not Iran. It doesn't have these vast populations. It does not have a kind of a hinterland to which you can ship things. It doesn't have a huge consumer base like Turkey or Iran do, for example. So why is it that Jabal Ali port appears there and nowhere else? I mean, one obvious response would be, oh, well, these are um, oil producing economies. But what is also specifically interesting about Dubai is that Dubai actually doesn't have very much oil. Yes, it is part of the United Arab Emirates. And yes, oil is United Arab Emirates, in particular, uh, the Emirate of Abu Dhabi um, is, is a major producer of oil. But Dubai's economy, although completely interwoven with the economies of the rest of the UAE and with the peninsula and elsewhere, is not necessarily oil dependent. And so those things were the reasons that I, those puzzles were the reasons that I really wanted to understand trade, maritime trade on the Arabian Peninsula. There was also another reason, and I think that is much more of a Middle East studies person's um, point of view. There tends to be 
a tendency within uh, social sciences and humanities to exceptionalize the Middle East and even within the Middle East to exceptionalize, uh, exceptionalize the Arabian Peninsula. I'll give you a couple of uh, words, uh, sort of keywords that you hear uh, about Dubai. Bling, security, labor exploitation, and, and or you know these really big, sometimes quite attractive, sometimes atrocious buildings. Um, you know, the, the, there's a whole series of... Uh, cliches that have come to shape the view, not just in the mainstream, not just in the vernacular or the, uh, or the press, but even within scholarship of the Middle East, but then within the Middle East of the Arabian Peninsula. And part of what I wanted to do was also to upturn that. So if I am going to talk about, for example, of labor exploitation, I want to specifically situate it in particular historical processes. If I want to talk about the bling, I also want to make comparisons with other places Places whose bling doesn't attract quite the same attention, say, for example, Singapore. Uh, and I also wanted to make sure that it was clear that Arabian Peninsula may, be, may look geographically contained, but in fact, it is in some ways at the center of a whole lot of both regional and global nodes of trade, of relations of trade, of um, interactions. Um, or, and, and that was one part of the reason I really wanted to focus on the Arabian Peninsula. I want to underline the the size and importance of maritime shipping, which just blew me away reading your book, because I think we tended to find an age or an era of capitalism by its most advanced and novel form of technology. And so in our popular imaginary, the airplane displaces the steamship and then telecommunications displaced the airplane. But today, 90 percent of world cargo moves by ship, including 60 percent of world trade in oil. What sort of infrastructure are the ocean and the ships that connect the ports across it through all of these well-established trade routes? And what do we miss about global capitalism when we don't put that all front and center? Yeah, those are really interesting percentages. And what's also really interesting is that while oil is uh, about 60% of the world's oil, in fact, does travel by sea, um, oil itself is about 30% of all the cargo that is uh, carried aboard ships. And that's actually a drop from the 1970s when about 60% of all the cargo that was being carried by sea was oil. And I think that says also something about the transformations in the global economy in the sense that now the uh, great majority of the world's cargo by value is um, actually manufactured cargo. And that bulk or, uh, cargoes, such as ores or grain, for example, and liquid um, or crude cargoes, although they are quite large percentages, they have dropped in terms of the value uh, that they take up as part of the cargo that travels um, on uh, the sea by ship. Now, why um, the question that you asked about why is it that it, it's, it's the scale of this? Why is it so enormous? I think it has something to do with, um, number one, with actually the scale of the global economy. But I think it certainly also has to do with the fact that um, we now have the diffusion of the processes of capital accumulation to lots of places um, uh, beyond the North Atlantic, in some senses, uh, or, or beyond what you would call the, the OECD countries. It is really quite significant, for example, that China, since the beginning of this century, 
starting a little bit before that, but really since the beginning of this century, has dominated uh, the global economy and manufacture. It is quite significant, for example, that that has also had, had, has had cascading effects on some of the countries of Southeast Asia. And so you now, for example, see Vietnam trying to capture some of that manufacturing power that is coming out of China. And of course, then if you actually think about it, the amount of stuff that is being produced requires also a vast, vast uh, input of both material, whether that's fuel, so oil going from, say, the Arabian Peninsula to China, but also going from Azerbaijan and Central Asia to China, but also ore, iron ore in particular for the production of steel, but also grain, but also, and and you go through the list of all of the different goods that have to travel by ship to get to China. uh, And then it becomes clear that that is quite a significant factor in the expansion of global trade. But there's also a kind of a process of self-reproduction in the business, in the sense that once there has been a move towards the gargantuization of ships, um, a move towards making a, a kind of a taking advantage of an economy of scale in the business, what you end up seeing is that there seems to be very little engineering or regulatory or even geographic limits to how big the ships can get and how often they can travel and to which ports they can go. It seems to me that we're living in this slightly dystopian era in which everything seems to be possible. And I call that dystopian because everything seeming to be possible also has other after effects, which we can talk about, especially when it comes to the ecology. Everything seems to be possible and there's very little limit on on how big this can get. So it self-reproduces in a sense, if you will. Yeah. In this past year, even before Suez a few weeks ago, it really made clear the importance of these ocean-based supply chains like never before. I'm having a really hard time, for example, finding a new bicycle right now. Yes. So uh, COVID made that very clear. COVID made the significance of these supply chains very clear. And it actually, ever given, also made the significance of shipping as part of these supply chains quite clear. Some of the things that has happened because of COVID, which has been really interesting, and I think it has actually brought the arcana of shipping into people's um, living rooms, into into ordinary discussions. And as as you say, that's even before ever given and the spectacle of the meme, the memification of this enormous ship being dug up by a teeny little digger that could. Even before that, I think some of the things that have been really striking about COVID, for example, has been uh, the extent to which we didn't quite realize that even something as simple as a mask that we we use uh, in order to uh, prevent uh, airborne uh, particles to settle on our faces or settle on other people's faces, even such a simple mask or even the little plastic covering that is necessary, uh, the PPE that is necessary for people in the front line to cover themselves and protect themselves, that, that stuff is being produced halfway across the world. I'm not surprised by bicycles or automobiles, for example, being manufactured from parts that are coming from all sorts of places. But it becomes clear that even some of the most ordinary, simple, humble things that we use in our everyday life is produced elsewhere. So that's the first thing that was that became really clear. The second thing that was really striking and it became clear, uh, in particular in the UK, when the COVID restrictions lessened a little bit and trade started to 
take off again. I, I think actually this was an issue in the UK and in the US. We said uh, suddenly people realized, people that were in charge of the management of ports and uh, trade, suddenly they realized that actually a lot of the containers, empty containers, were, if you will, out of place. They weren't where they needed to be in order for them to be filled, in order to be sh- for them to be shipped. Uh, in some way, in some uh, Chinese ports, they were needed and they weren't there. And in some Chinese ports, there was an excess of them and people needed them, for example, say in Seattle or in Los Angeles or in uh, Felixstowe here in the UK. Uh, the containers being out of place has actually turned out to be an enormous dilemma. I was just seeing the other day that Hapag Lloyd, which is one of the big shipping companies um, that is based in uh, Germany, has actually ordered something like 200,000 containers. I think it was hundreds of thousands of containers, precisely because so many containers are out of place right now. And that to me is also quite interesting because this is not a matter of complexity, such as, for example, the seafarers getting off the ships to go home, which requires uh, intervention by the shipping company and by the agents and by the port authorities, by, and by the, the nation to, of which they're citizen and by the nation of the ship whose flag uh, they're serving on there and by the nation where they're supposed to get off. So this wasn't one of these matters of multilateral complexity. This was a very enormously important technology, but a very low tech one, the container being out of place. They're just not being enough of it. And so to me, that was also really fascinating is that that, that it actually is also something quite emblematic about the shipping industry is that on the one hand, it is highly complex, highly um, uh, automated in many, many different ways. And then in other ways, it is dependent on some of the most basic and as I said, low tech kinds of technologies in order for it to operate. Uh, and not to mention labor as well. Big metal boxes. <laughs> Big metal boxes. Yeah. Mark Levinson Mark Levinson has written an extraordinarily good book called The Box specifically which and it is fascinating to read about the specific history of how the guy who decided to come up with the idea of the box actually thought of a way to make sure that ships and trains and trucks could be all connected through your the same cargo could be moved from one to the other and so that's how the the box came about Before we get any further can you map out the Arabian Peninsula and the Gulf region for people who don't have a solid mental map of it? What what countries does it include and what are its land and water boundaries? So the Arabian Peninsula juts out between West Asia and Northeast Africa. I I think before the continental shifts, uh, the continental plates shifted and cracks emerged alongside, if you will, for example, one of the cracks being the Red Sea. The Arabian Peninsula essentially was the connection between uh, West Asia and Africa. What Arabian Peninsula includes, the countries that it includes, uh, are in order of uh, size, Saudi Arabia, uh, the United Arab Emirates, or Oman, I think they're very close in size, and Yemen. And then a number of smaller emirates that are on the Gulf side of it, so on the northern side of it. And those smaller emirates are Kuwait, Bahrain, and Qatar. Now, the United Arab Emirates itself includes seven emirates, the two, two of which most people know, the first one being Abu Dhabi, which is a huge oil producer, the other one being Dubai, which is where Jabal Ali Port is, and uh, lots of UKians, lots of Brits um, love to go and holiday there. And then there's a number of other emirates which don't have oil, and some of them are actually quite poor emirates. 
Okay, so among all of these different countries, Saudi Arabia is obviously the world's one of the world's largest uh, producers and exporters of oil. It actually competes with Russia and the U.S. in producing and exporting oil. So that's also quite interesting because both Russia and the U.S. are now reaching um, the level that Saudi produces. The United Arab Emirates, Kuwait, and Oman also produce oil. Although to Oman's oil is uh, depleting in some ways, or at least more, it's not as easily and um, readily available. Yemen is one of the poorest countries um, in the world, uh, and and it has been beset by a war waged on it by Saudi Arabia and the UAE, making it even a more of a put upon country. Bahrain has more or less, although it was one of the first, it was the first place on the Arabian Peninsula to have um, had oil has now more or less run out of oil and so is dependent on services and other kinds of manufacturing for its economy. The Persian Gulf or uh, Arabian Gulf um, and the Gulf of Oman uh, are on the northern border of the Arabian Peninsula and the Red Sea runs alongside its uh, sort of southern slash uh, western side. And then Oman and Yemen, which run alongside the other side of the peninsula, sit on the Arabian Gulf and on the Indian Ocean, essentially. Iran and Iraq are northern neighbors, if you will, Iran across the water, Iraq through connections to Kuwait. Jordan is also a neighbor. Across the water, the other side, along the Red Sea, many of the countries of East Africa, so Sudan, uh, Egypt, uh, Somaliland, and Djibouti face the Arabian Peninsula. Across the Indian Ocean, of course, there's India and Sri Lanka. So in a sense, this is an enormously important location because it sits, it connects the West Asian landmass to the African landmass via the sort of the uh, Jordan and Sinai. uh, And then it looks out to the Indian Ocean and to India and China from there. I want to talk, get into the the history. Shipping has been defined by a number of huge technological advances, the switch from sail to steam, and then from coal-powered steam to oil-powered steam, and then finally, as you were discussing earlier, containerization. How did each of these technological advances change the nature of shipping, and how did those changes to shipping in turn change the capitalist world system as a whole? That's um, a really excellent question. So the change from sail to steam was singularly important because it actually improved the ability of ships to uh, traverse uh, the water, the deeps, um, at any time and without necessarily, particularly in the Indian Ocean, uh, without necessarily being dependent on the monsoon winds or on the monsoon seasons. Before coal-powered ships came uh, into being, uh, ships in the Indian Ocean had to sail in one direction during some of the uh, year and in the other direction during some of the rest of the year because of the ways in which the monsoon wind uh, blew transversely across the Indian Ocean from Africa to Asia and back Once the steam engine was invented, and and there is a whole lot of ways in which the invention of the steam engine is inseparable from colonialism and actually slavery, because I think the funding, financing for that, uh, the sort of the underlying economy that made that possible and made it uh, so significant actually is inseparable from those, those two spheres of capital accumulation in Britain. In fact, the very first set of ships that as a whole switched over to steam engines were the East India Company's um, ships. And once they switched over to 
steam from sailing ships, they had to have coaling stations around a lot of the different places where the ships were going to sail. So what is really fascinating is that with East India Company becoming essentially the sort of the the first of the large global institutions to switch to steam, uh, you see the consolidation or the expansion of colonial conquest in a lot of the places on the way between Europe and Asia where coaling stations were needed. So in the Arabian Peninsula, for example, uh, the city of Aden was colonized in 1838 and one of the, um, and it became quickly uh, one of the four largest uh, coaling stations in the world after New York, Liverpool and London. Though they seized Aden to protect the honor of British women. <laughs> yes, it was exactly. So the, in, the the invasion of it, but rather interestingly, this kind of using rescuing white women uh, from from quote unquote savages uh, has been actually a useful alibi for the British Empire everywhere that it has gone. And in fact, that is the excuse that it was used that was used in order to conquer Aden in eighteen thirty eight. So the switch by the East India Company was then followed by the Admiralty, the British Admiralty actually switching to steam. And you can see then that in that is the moment at which commerce and war and empire just converge in this incredibly intense marriage, if you will, which lasts um, and, and has lasted in some senses, taking different shapes, obviously, since then. So that was one of the most significant moments. This is the, the sort of the mid, uh, if you will, the, the middle, centru- middle decades of the 19th century. What actually ends up even accelerating the transform the, the transfer to steam to, to coal powered ships even it makes it even faster what accelerates it is actually the opening of the Suez Canal when the Suez Canal is opened in 1869 it, it took about 10 years or so to build um, obviously ships cannot sail down the Suez Canal precisely because of the questions of wind because you can't control the you know the uh, winds as you're going down the canal in the same way. And so if ships wanted to go from Europe to Asia through this route that was significantly shorter than going around the Cape of Good Hope, they actually had to have steam engines. And so that meant that opening of the Suez Canal accelerated the, the, the conversion to steam. And then, of course, the story of switch from coal to oil uh, is is uh, really well known. Again, it had to do with war. When Churchill was the Lord of Admiralty in Britain, he actually wanted faster naval ships. And in order for those ships to be faster, they had to be smaller and they had to be slimmer, and they had to have the ability to actually to be the ability to not have to stop in for uh, taking on massive amounts of coal. And so uh, that was one of of the factors that was quite significant about switching to this new form of powering the ship's engine. But interestingly, some of the earlier instances where ships had switched to oil was actually by the Nobel family, the, the Nobel family, the Swiss family, who's um, one of whose sons funded the Nobel Peace Prize and the other prizes. The Nobel family actually had stakes in Osiri oil. And one of the things that they invented were tanker ships. And the tanker ships were some of the earliest ships to actually use fuel oil for their um, for their engines, 
rather than coal. And that also, again, was significant. So again, you can see commerce in oil in this instance and the sort of admiralty switching from coal to oil, again, were quite significant factors in the eventual change um, over from coal to oil in the shipping. And then finally, I think in in, in the kind of annals of shipping, the other um, and perhaps uh, most significant in the 20th century moment of transition was the invention of the box, which I, as I mentioned earlier, Mark Levinson has written a really amazing book about it, and and I really highly recommend it. In that moment, in the 1950s, uh, an American uh, merchant who was involved in shipping actually wanted something that was multimodal. What multimodal means is that you can essentially um, have a, a way of transporting some cargo from ship to rail or trucks. So in different modes, the same cargo can be transported to all of them. And and a container ship, a standardized container ship, actually allows that much more easily. There were also other very specifically labor-related reasons um, given for um, this switch to containers. It was very well known and has continued to be that one of the sort of the taxes, if you will, that the stevedores and dockers take off of the cargo, used to take off the cargo, was some some amount of pilfering that happened uh, in the unloading of cargo by hand or manually or using the older uh, winches and uh, cranes that um, that stevedores used to use. And putting everything in a locked container, of course, stopped pilfering. So that was one thing. The second thing that was quite significant was that automation, uh, the, the, the kind of uh, dependence less on labor and now more on big machines that could shift these big, huge boxes. Uh, initially, they were 20 feet um, uh, containers. And that's actually why the unit of measure is TEU or 20 foot equivalent containers. Um, and the, these TEUs, these uh, 20-foot uh, containers had to be shifted by crane rather than by persons. Obviously, humans couldn't lift them. So that actually also led to a reduction, a major reduction in the number of dockers and stevedores at the docks where these kinds of containerized cargo were arriving. And that was quite significant because, of course, in a lot of the, and actually not just the Atlantic world, but in a lot of the world, dockers have traditionally been quite intransigent, quite mobilized. And so this was actually quite an effective way to ensure that their numbers were reduced and therefore their leverage and their power was reduced. So uh, the containerization very specifically and directly addressed not only inefficiencies, and I'm putting quote marks around that, um, in shipping, but also very specifically addressed, it was intended as as a means of defanging or domesticating labor. The invention of steam was this early case of humans extracting energy to escape what had there to four seemed like hard and fast limits set by nature. And that's a constant refrain in your, your book, all of this exploitation and destruction of nature, everything from oil to also things like sand, enormous amounts of sand to make more stuff and move more of it cheaply, powering ships, remaking coastlines. But we're finding out that nature still has hard and fast limits. We've just sort of deferred them. It's true. And and of course, we are actually coming up pretty hard against the nature's hard and fast limits right now. I mean, it's very clear that our exploitation of the natural resources, our devastation of the, the uh, ecosystem in which, which we inhabit, and the destruction 
also of environments not near to us, but through our consumption and through our practices and through what we do, actually quite far from where we live, um, has become a, a specific feature of our life today. I mean, so oil and sand, I've actually written an article somewhere else about the oil and sand being these two incredibly significant commodities. Oil, because it is one of the most valuable that, that goes on the sea. Sand, because it, despite its... Um, quite uh, much, way much lower uh, than oil value. Actually, in terms of volume, it's one of the one of the uh, most significant traded um, goods in the world. Sometimes, again, it uh, it sort of contests water. It, it, com- uh, it competes with water as being uh, one of the most traded goods in the world. And sand uh, mining has become this uh, incredibly ecologically damaging practice that feeds the insatiable need for construction in places as far apart as China, the Gulf, Egypt, and of course, the US. Uh, And sand is needed because concrete requires uh, cement to mix with aggregate. And aggregate is um, is forms of sand and pebbles and things. And there are very specific forms of sand or there are very specific qualities of sand that are needed for making concrete. The, the sand that is required for concrete needs to be uneven uh, in its shape and it needs to be unequal across different sand grains. So it, it can't be very equal in, in terms of its size. It can't be very uniform in terms of its size. And what is really interesting is that, uh, for example, in the Arabian Peninsula, where there is an enormous sand desert, a really quite beautiful one, the desert sand cannot be used for that construction because wind eroded sand tends to be both uniform and very perfectly shaped. Whereas water eroded sand tends to be exactly the kind of thing that um, construction of concrete requires. And so we're seeing, for example, for the construction of massive concrete forms, whether they're buildings or land reclamation or other things, sand is being imported from the places that export them. And some of the places that export them tend to have riparian uh, economies and sand is being dug up from the bottom of the rivers or sand is being dug up from the beaches. Places like Myanmar, I think you mentioned? Myanmar is one of them. Cambodia is the other one. And and one of the things that's devastating about that, of course, is that when you dig up these uh, the sand, you're actually affecting the flow of the water. You are actually causing m- massive erosion along the, whether it's the littoral of the, whether it's the coast or whether it's the uh, riverbanks. And you're, of course, disturbing the incredibly sensitive ecosystems there and sort of the the, the habitats of the flora and fauna that are living there. And so, uh, for example, the construction of land reclamation in Singapore recently has depleted uh, many of the rivers of Myanmar and has resulted in these massive scandals in Cambodia where cronies related to the government have been illegally sending sand to Singapore. The same sorts of things also happens, of course, uh, with a lot of the construction in the Gulf. As for oil, we know that our consumption of hydrocarbons, whether that's uh, for our electricity or for our transport, of course, has enormous uh, planetary consequences for everybody beyond us um, uh, because of climate change, because of the emissions that are causing climate change. And so that is also quite a significant factor. And oil and sand tend to be very central to the story that I tell, precisely for those reasons. Today's global trading order that has so many in the West so worried is itself, you write, rooted in an Indian Ocean-centered British 
empire. And before that, in trade networks that existed before European colonialism. You write, quote, Many of these routes and ports of trade became objects of European conquest precisely because of their abundance, the sophistication of their mechanisms of exchange, the depth of their infrastructure of trade, and their extensive and long-standing connections to their hinterlands, to their coastal neighbors, and across the sea. What was the geographic reach of these routes and the, the size and content of the trade moving across them? And then how did European powers taking control of these Indian Ocean trade networks transform them? The brilliant Indian historian and theorist Jairus Banerjee has written a little bit about these kinds of networks that existed, as um, has a number of really fantastic Indian Ocean historians. What is really interesting is that prior to the arrival of the Europeans, there were extensive networks that extended from the Arabian Peninsula to South and Southeast Asia, and from also from the Arabian Peninsula to East Africa. And then, of course, all of these different places traded with each other, of course, depending on the monsoon winds. And it's fascinating that there was an enormous amount of local knowledge about maritime transport in the monsoon age. And so there was actually transferable skills and uh, maritime skills that were required. And of course, when you have these kinds of trade happening, so cotton going in one direction, timber, for example, was shipped very often from uh, East Africa to the Arabian Peninsula, which tends not to have timber there, there are some coastal areas in Yemen and Oman that actually have nice forests, but largely it is arid or semi-arid and therefore it doesn't have for example, trees that can be used for construction, textiles that were produced, for example, in India or China, cotton, um, as well as silk um, and woolens, dates and water that was taken from, for example, the rivers of dates and waters from the groves and rivers of Iran and Iraq were taken to the Arabian Peninsula and onward. Livestock was transported um, along these routes. Um, So there there was actually, and and of course, gold um, and precious materials, as well as, of course, metals were transported. So copper, for example, or tin and spices. Um, So all of the different kinds of cargoes that become associated with, of course, uh, with subsequent expansion of empire in those areas, um, everything from things that you could eat, whether they were, as I said, livestock or spices and dates or things that you could construct with. So, for example, uh, special forms of stones or timber or things that you could wear. So uh, textiles were uh, circulated in all of these different places and, of course, went beyond there as well. So there was um, also extensive trade with the European states and Southeast Asia and elsewhere. And so this Indian Ocean economy existed. And, of course, it had fluctuations. So some ports emerged and some ports receded. Aden, for example, had a glorious time during the medieval times and then it sort of became a backwater. And what was interesting was that as these ports became quite significant uh, in in this kind of an Indian Ocean economy, they developed a whole set of skills. So not only maritime skills, for example, of these incredibly skillful captains that that could navigate the monsoon, but also systems of uh, finance, if you will. So borrowing money and transferring money. So we, for example, talk about the Hawala system, where you have uh, networks of trust established across the sea, where families sometimes operate within families, sometimes within businesses, sometimes within kin groups um, uh, or religious groups, for example. And these uh, networks operated to provide credit to merchants. And so you had 
these centers essentially becoming a kind of a centers of proto-insurance or proto-banking, if you will, long before the Europeans arrived. And what was fascinating was that, of course, there were also mobile communities in these areas that were famous for, for the kind of trade they engaged in. It's really, uh, Arme- it's really interesting to see Armenians, for example, having beachheads in lots of different places. Um, recently, there have been a couple of books out about Iraqi Jewish families that were quite active uh, in in this form of merchant trade across the Indian Ocean, starting a long time ago, but also going on into the 19th century. So, for example, the Sassoon family had a presence in Singapore and in Hong Kong, etc. And you also had, of course, uh, connections to the uh, Mediterranean, um, again, from the Indian Ocean. And some of that was, uh, some, some of those connections were through riverine corrections. Uh, so some of those were so Orontes River, for example. Um, and some of those were overland via Egypt sometimes um, and elsewhere, via by the Levant. And so you had this incredibly rich economy. And then, of course, first uh, with the arrival of the Portuguese, and then quickly followed by the Dutch, uh, and then British and the French, what you ended up uh, seeing was that these imperial powers, imperial European powers, quickly began grafting on their systems of rule onto existing forms uh, that, that, that were there. So there were already, for example, commercial tribunal forms the European forms of imperial law were grafted on top of that. The existing networks of credit and trade uh, were sometimes co-opted. And uh, some of those ports that had been quite significant in the pre-imperial, pre-colonial economy ended up remaining important precisely because of the accumulated knowledges, the accumulated uh, kinds of capital, if you want, proto-capital or commercial capital facilities. And because of the fact that they were already ready-made markets, if you will, for the kinds of goods that the Europeans were bringing in, as well as incredibly useful ports of uh, gateways to the hinterland economies, you know, in in all of those places. Uh, And so it is interesting that the empires did not remake these areas, although they did uh, transform them, but they really grafted themselves on top of it. And one of the books that I would really recommend, I love to actually be able to sort of uh, pass people on to experts on this, is Fahad Bishara, a scholar of law in the Indian Ocean, who has worked with a lot of these early modern 17th, 18th century, 16th, 17th, 18th century documents, has some really fascinating stuff about the way that law has operated in the context of this transition from pre-colonial to colonial periods in the Indian Ocean and these transformations. So so those connections are really fascinating and they actually have continued to some extent. So we see, for example, Hadrami, Hadramaut being one of the big provinces in Yemen. We see Hadrami communities in Southeast Asia and those those connections are still there. We still see, for example, Armenian trade in those places. We still see, for example, Indian and particularly from uh, Mumbai uh, traders that have a major presence in those regions. We still see, for example connections between East Africa and um, and and some of these Gulf economies. And uh, obviously, those have fluctuated over time. But so many of those relations um, tend to exist, have coexisted with colonial power, sometimes alongside it, sometimes as part of it, sometimes in uh, in, in challenge to it. So it's, it's, it's a really interesting area to actually research. A key piece of the, the maritime imperial puzzle, which we ch- touched on a little bit already, of course, is is the Suez Canal, which opened in 1869 and became fully operational in 18, 
71, and which, of course, has received lots of attention recently. How was the canal built? Who, in terms of both labor and capital, built it? And then, importantly, why was it built? Why was a maritime passage through the Sinai so critical to British and French imperial ambitions? So let me start with the why first. It was it was enormously important to British and French imperial ambitions because of their contestation in Europe itself and in the Mediterranean. The British in particular were really worried that the Mediterranean had by the 19th century become essentially a French lake is what they called it, in part because the French, of course, had colonial holdings in um, Algeria across the water and also in Morocco various kinds of colonial arrangements with Morocco and Tunisia. And so the British really worried that because of the French dominance in the Mediterranean, that they were not going, that the British were not going to be able to take advantage of the kind of trade opportunities, commercial opportunities there. But the British also already had um, imperial interests in South Asia. uh, And there was already, as I said, quite a big trade around the Cape of Good Hope to India. And When the switch to steam happened, and as also the um, major uh, Indian rebellion of the mid-19th century resulted in essentially the the institution of empire over India, sort of the switch over from East India Company to the British, actually the British state becoming um, the imperial rulers of India, all of those things went into the decision to collaborate between the French and the British on the building of the canals uh, and financing the building of the canal. And that was actually quite significant because, of course, as they are also engaged in contestation in imperial warfare and here and there and everywhere, nevertheless, there is a kind of a collaborative element around this kind of a uh, this process of imperial consolidation in Asia and Africa going on. And the French were interested in doing so because they also wanted to be able to have access. They, they also had beachheads in Asia and East Africa to, to which they wanted to have access. The kinds of arrangements that were made in order to actually build the canal, the canal was built by about a million or so, we we think. Um, There's recent research about this and there's more uh, books coming out. But rather interestingly, there is very little written about the, the workers who built the canal in English. Um, there, there have been some pieces of research in Arabic, and as I said, there's more re- coming out. But what becomes clear that is that there were probably around a million peasants that were pressed into corvée labor, into forced labor, to build the canal. Anybody who has been to Sinai knows that, for example, today if we travel to Sinai, well, once we can travel to Sinai, you know that you probably have to have, for example, yellow fever vaccine and various other kinds of vaccinations, you know, because of the because of kind of native species of mosquitoes and various other illnesses. Now, imagine working in these incredibly hot temperatures in a desert, pressed into labor, uh, not being really given proper food, being forced to work in uh, atrocious conditions. People were, I have been re- reading recent research in which people are talking about, for example, the, the laborers complaining about not having enough water, dying of thirst, and then having all of these other illnesses, everything from uh, yellow fever and typhoid to cholera and other illnesses that were happening and that was that, that were decimating the population uh, of workers. And there's some indication that maybe 100 
hundreds of thousands actually died doing so. And eventually they dug the canal along what was thought to have been a, sort of a pre-existing ancient ditch uh, along Sinai, uh, up and down the Sinai. And so that canal, t- it took about 10 years to dig. And I think one of the things about it that is really fascinating is that both the Suez Canal and the Panama Canal, which was built several decades later, but again, using forced labor and an atrocious, in this instance, not desert conditions, but jungle conditions. And again, with lots of people dying from illness and there being these racialized hierarchies of labor involved in this. In both of those instances, these are, of course, these were touted as kind of triumphs of European ingenuity. And the fact that Panama has a lot more written about the condition of the workers, but the fact that there isn't a vast library about the experience of the laborers who built Suez Canal also says something about the, the sort of the force uh, and form of that imperial project there. And then less than a century after it was constructed by under British and, and French coercion, Britain and France and Israel invaded Egypt Sinai to seize control of the Suez Canal. Why and what what impact did that invasion have on both shipping and the entire global economy and politics? The 1950s is one of the really great decades, and it actually dominates a lot of the book, in part because I think that it is, there's so many interesting things happening in the 1950s that, that change the shape of the Middle East, that change the shape of the world, and that change the shape of shipping. Uh, of course, the single most important thing there being decolonization. And so the processes of decolonization, the anti-colonial struggles that emerged in Asia and Africa during that period and in the Middle East, of course, led to nationalist leaders taking over in a lot of these places. And there's, of course, a lot of recent revisionist work that actually criticizes these forms of, you know, the nationalisms that emerge. But for the moment, from in that particular moment that processes of decolonization were taking place, some of the things that were quite decisive were nationalization of economic assets, if you will, or resources that had been for so long held by imperial powers. Like by Mossadegh in Iran. Like by Mossadegh in Iran in 1951, exactly. So so Mossadegh in Iran nationalized the Anglo-Iranian oil company, the company that is now called BP. And, and of course, then what was radically punished for it, culminating in a coup in 1953 that uh, overthrew him and, um, and put in place, back in place, the Shah of Iran. I think that in some ways, Gamal Abdel Nasser, sort of the great nationalist, anti-colonial re- leader of Egypt, looked to what had happened to Mossadegh in 1951 as a kind of both a warning and also a a model, if you will. And so the nationalization of the Suez Canal uh, in 1956, it was a kind of a rebuke to the imperial powers. And it was also a uh, really a necessary action he Nasser felt, uh, in part because he wanted to fund a whole series of national uh, large-scale projects. Now, again, in retrospect, some of those large-scale projects, the Aswan Dam, for example, have been, you know, ecological uh, catastrophes. There were also human catastrophes. They displaced lots of people, etc. But at the time, because of of the British denying funding to uh, to to, to the Egyptians for the construction of the dam, and also, as I said, as a kind of a major, both symbolic and actually economically significant act, uh, Nasser nationalized the Suez Canal. And in the immediate aftermath of that, the British, the French, and the Israelis, who, of course, had their own expansionist designs in the region, all three attacked and the, uh, attacked across the Sinai and 
of course, occupied the Suez Canal and uh, went into Egypt proper. What is really fascinating in that moment, and it's often forgotten, is that that moment happened also in the heat of the Cold War and not much longer after the Soviet invasion of Hungary. And so the uh, Dwight Eisenhower, President Eisenhower of the US, freaked out. I mean, I think that is really the the best kind of description of what happened because he was really worried that, you know, in this moment that Hungary had been invaded by Soviet forces, that if Nasser was going to turn to to the Soviet Union for support, that Egypt was going to fall as well. I'm putting scare quotes around fall Um, because these were sort of Cold War calculations. And so interestingly, Eisenhower in fact, put into place a whole lot of sort of uh, sanctions against British and the French in order to force them to withdraw. But in the process, in in the period between the time that the invasion happened and when the the tripartite states were forced to withdraw, uh, the Suez Canal actually closed down. There was war debris, there were ships that had sunk, but there was also the the canal was shut down for about eight uh, months. Now, this was also, 1950s was also enormously important because this was a period during which uh, the countries that had been involved in the second, the European and Asian countries that had been uh, devastated by the Second World War were emerging out of that period and massive reconstruction and massive processes of reindustrialization or industrialization was going on in Japan. It was going on in Germany, was going on in Britain and France and elsewhere. And so, and, and all of those uh, economies depended on, uh, all of those processes of reconstruction depended on oil that was coming from the Middle East, uh, but also other stuff like tin and rubber that was coming from Malaya. And all of this was going through the Suez Canal. Now, the shutdown of the Suez Canal means that all of these ships that were coming from Asia or from the Middle East and going on to the continent uh, actually had to reroute around the Cape of Good Hope, which is something that we saw also in the recent closure of the canal by Ever Given. And this rerouting, the companies didn't know how long it was going to last. And so one of the things that they wanted to do was to take advantage of um, economies uh, of scale. And so ships ended up getting bigger. In particular, tankers started getting bigger and bigger and bigger for more of the cargo. For it to be cost effective for them to be at sea for so much longer. Exactly. That is exactly right. And so there were really interesting, um, I was looking at New York Times and Washington Post and London Times and some of the other uh, local presses and uh, in a lot of the places. And what was really interesting was the kinds of things that you read about in that eight month period, you had these tankers emerging, but also other kinds of major reconsiderations of economy ends up emerging. So you have short-term things, like, for example, because all of these ships were now going by Durban uh, around the Cape of Good Hope, suddenly uh, there had to be, there there was a massive spike in importation of beef from the hinterland to Durban because sailors and the ships required meat. And so there was this kind of a sudden change in sort of the economies of these places that were on, on route. But also other kinds of larger and longer term significant events happened because of this. Suddenly, the European states were like, well, we're too dependent on the the oil that is coming from the Gulf. And so there was huge amounts of investment poured into already underway, half-hearted explorations for oil that was not dependent on the Suez Canal. So 
Libya, for example, um, which obviously uh, is right on the Mediterranean, but also importantly in West Africa and, of course, Nigeria today and, you know, Guinea are some of the significant, um, some of the biggest producers of oil in the continent of Africa um, and Algeria. So, so you had these kinds of exploration of oil in other sources also became quite significant. Some of the other things were more local effects because the economies in Britain and elsewhere were affected. There was a massive spike in emigration from Britain, for example, to Australia and New Zealand. Um, There was a shortage of tea in Britain, which was considered to be quite significant. And there were other considerations. So, for example, new modalities uh, of uh, figuring out how to make up for oil that is not coming from the Middle East, but has not yet been tapped for production. So could we buy oil from the Soviet Union? Could we do oil swaps between Soviet Union and others? And so there was a lot of really interesting economic devices that came out in that period, which emerged precisely because the Suez Canal was closed for eight months. And then again, in 1967, it was closed for much longer, between 67 and 75, because of the 67 war, the 73 war, and sort of also the low intensity wars that were going on throughout that period between Israel um, and Arab states, but especially Egypt. Um, the, The canal was closed for eight years. And some of those changes that we saw emerging in the 1950s, um, because of some of the global economic changes that we saw emerging because of that, actually consolidated in that period. And so that closure of the Suez Canal was actually really important in causing these shifts that uh, often are not necessarily traced back to that particular moment, but which that particular moment was enormously influential in shaping. You write that the 1967 Arab-Israeli War's greatest effect, tragically, was the way it bookended the this era of anti-colonial revolt. What do Suez and the 67 war tell us about the beginning of this epical reactionary tide that washed across the region and then across much of the world? I, I quote one of the great villains of Middle East studies, Bernard Lewis, the, the sort of the nemesis of Edward Said, <laughs> but also, you know, the the great sort of intellectual warmonger of the Bush administration. And Bernard Lewis actually had an article in uh, Foreign Affairs in which he celebrated the defeat, the round defeat of the Syrians, um, of the Jordanians and the Egyptians in the 67 war and saw it, that de- saw that defeat, um, the closure of the Suez Canal, sort of bringing Egypt to its knee economically. And also at that very moment, sort of the rise of the conservative emirates protected by at the time, British, but in the space of three or four years, then that protection was handed over to the US, the consolidation of the power of those conservative states. And of course, uh, the rise of Israel as one of the good little gendarmes upon whom, regional gendarmes upon whom the US could depend, the other being Iran, Iran and Saudi Arabia. And so it, this this moment was really a moment which that sh- sort of a brief, however problematic, moment of decolonization really came to a screeching halt. And power shifted in a really sort of a significant way from the nationalist republics of the Levant and North Africa to the reactionary emirates and monarchies of the Arabian Peninsula. You write that, that war and geopolitical conflict have remade maritime shipping and naval power in really complex and interrelated ways. First, 
support and other logistics required for military use, then facilitate investment and modernization for civilian and commercial ends. But then on the other hand, ports and countries that side with regional and imperial powers unsurprisingly tend to win out. You write, quote, politics and social relations were often more important than geographic felicity. So many of the ports of the Red Sea and the coasts of the Persian Gulf were placed there despite their location. How historically have military and civilian logistics together remade and also destroyed commercial and military power across the peninsula and the Gulf region? I think two places on the Gulf and one on the peninsula but outside the Gulf are actually really instructive in that regard. The so two places in um, on the Gulf are Kuwait, Kuwait City and Dubai, and the one outside the Gulf but on the peninsula is Aden. So as I already mentioned, Aden in the 19th century and actually well into the 20th century until about 1967 when anti-colonial struggle by the, by the Adenese forced the British out of there, it was an enormously significant port. It was uh, not only a coaling station, it became also a bunkering, um, oil bunkering, fueling station. It also was quite significant because it was a landing site for telegraph. And of course, that was uh, those forms of telecommunication were also really important to the maintenance of empire and capital. And Aden was also a major naval and military base east of Suez for the British. And so it was enormously important. Interestingly, Aden actually did happen to have a geographically felicitous location. It is on a deep natural harbor. It is uh, the, the harbor is actually quite safe from winds and from, from weather. And although Yemen itself does not is not rich in, for example, water resources or the kinds of food for victualing, nevertheless, it has been a sort of a crossroads of trade for a really long time, for millennia, in fact. And so in some ways, um, it seemed to have been a natural, and I'm putting natural in uh, scare quotes here, but it seemed to have been a natural or at least geographically felicitous location. When we look at Kuwait and Dubai, neither of those things apply. Neither have natural harbors. They all are dependent on on, on sort of ships coming, uh, in the case of Kuwait, all the way up the, the Persian Gulf, Persian slash Arabian Gulf and Persian. You have a very Arabian. unusual photo of, I think, a British official being carried on someone's back out of a ship because that was. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, it was Lord Curzon, the very famous imperialist kind of vice. He was viceroy of India, actually, when he was being carried on the back of porters um, onto the shore, in part because the coasts in these places don't drop down you know, deep into the harbor. They actually are uh, kind of long, gentle, receding into the waters. And so uh, ships couldn't come very close to the coast. In fact, I think in most of these places, ships had to stay three miles off to uh, into the sea in order for uh, them not to ground in, in, you know, in these kinds of very uh, sandy bottom. The other thing is that the Gulf is very subject to kind of windstorms and sandstorms. And also to ships currents. And so the Shamal wind, the north wind, um, actually affects not only, not only like dumps sand in a lot of these places and makes it really difficult to navigate uh, when you don't have, for example, things like radar or GPS, 
But also, uh, significantly, those kinds of currents, the ship's currents actually, uh, sorry, the sea's currents really actually affect also where the bottom of the sea is. So you could, for example, dredge a channel in order for ships to come through. Uh, but if the shamal currents across underneath the sea, underneath the surface of the sea, what you're going to end up having is that those dredged channels are going to fill up again with the with the sort of the sand from the bottom of the sea. And the further up the coast, uh, the further up the Gulf you go, so towards Kuwait, for example, these issues um, are exacerbated. Despite that, Kuwait ended up becoming a quite a significant, actually, maritime place in the modern era. It always had it has had a long, long history of maritime trade. Its um, captains were actually quite famous for being able to navigate to uh, along to you know to across uh, the Gulf itself, but actually even further out to the Indian Ocean and along the coastal routes, all the way around the peninsula and on to East Africa. But these were ships that could come despite you know these very shallow seas they could come close to the coast the sort of the more modern heavier metal hulled ships uh, required deeper harbors and yet despite all of those kinds of disadvantages geographic disadvantage disadvantages and topographic disadvantages kuwait ended up flourishing it flourished in part because it ended up well it had oil so it had quite a lot of resources with which it could, for example, build these deeper harbors. But it also flourished because it was protected by the British um, officially until 1961, but it had very intimate relations with the British until uh, long after that, uh, advisors and engineers and businesses and whatnot. Um, because of this kind of a political arrangement, colonial arrangement, it ended up benefiting in a lot of ways from all the other wars that happened in the region. So going through lots of old newspapers, when, for example, the Israelis would bomb the port of Tartus in Syria in, in the 1967 war, and, and subsequently, businesses shifted to Kuwait. When the civil war in Lebanon happened, a lot of the Lebanon was a major banking center and other kinds of services, financial services center in the Middle East. A lot of those businesses shifted to Kuwait and to Dubai. And then you, and in Dubai, actually, the circumstances are very similar. Again, it doesn't have a natural harbor. The, uh, one of the boasts about Jabal Ali is that it's the world's largest man-made harbor, and it is entirely man-made. And one of the things that was interesting when I was on a ship going to Dubai, when I was on a ship going to Dubai twice, is I was really interested in looking at the maritime charts, at the maps, essentially the maritime maps of how you're going. And it's really fascinating to see that the channel, the ship's channel that has been dredged in order for this, these, some of the world's biggest ships not some of the world's biggest ships actually go through these channels to Jabal Ali. These channels are yay wide. Obviously, these ships have to go through them. But just, just a little bit further off, the depth of the sea is a third of what it needs to be, and a ship can ground very easily. And then, of course, if there are shamal currents going, these channels are going to be filled. And so it's a constant job of dredging it. And the reason that inhospitable to maritime transport place like Jabal Ali or Kuwait City could in various times end up becoming these centers of trade, not only of ships arriving, but also of maritime services related to shipping, banking and insurance and finance and whatnot arriving, is precisely because these places were politically protected. Both benefited and suffered. So it benefited because a lot of the transshipments for Iraq went into Kuwait during the Iran-Iraq War. It suffered because it uh, because of the tanker wars, where Iranians, because they knew that Kuwait was supporting Iraq, ta targeted a lot of Kuwaiti tankers. 
when Iraqis were also targeting any ships that were coming into Iranian uh, oil terminals. So there, so, so there were benefits and then there were disadvantages. And then, of course, Kuwait then ma- had a massive, was invaded by Saddam Hussein precisely because of all of the support it had given to Hussein, because of the money it had lent Hussein, but also because Saddam Hussein really needed an access to the sea. And so he invaded the, the peninsula that was shared by Kuwait and then later, of course, came into Kuwait itself. And then Kuwait essentially then handed over some of those businesses that it had accrued over the course of the two or three decades prior because of all the wars that were happening elsewhere in the Middle East, essentially handed over a lot of those businesses to Dubai. Dubai has managed to keep a lot of those businesses in place. So it is, as I mentioned earlier in the program, it is uh, it is the largest port in the Middle East. It's the only port appearing in the Journal of Commerce's top 10 that is not in Southeast or Southeast Asia. It is one of the largest financial centers in the world, not just the Middle East. It has the third largest uh, port management company in the world operating out of there. It, you know, so, so all of those different things actually ended up in Dubai in particular because of the different wars that happened throughout. And it also benefited, for example, from Aden, the decolonization of Aden, because when the British decided to shift their businesses, they shifted a lot of their businesses over to Kuwait, but also especially to Dubai. And so, again, the, the, the kinds of fluctuations in the fortunes of these places has very little to do with what would be considered to be natural reasons and everything to do with not only sort of regional politics, but broader imperial politics um, that, that is imposed on the region. You mentioned the the Iran-Iraq war in the 1980s and how it escalated into this tit-for-tat of attacks on oil tankers owned by foreign shippers. How did that tactic emerge and how did that shape the course of the war? It's a really terrible, actually, event. Um, and the scale of its horror, rather weirdly, has only become clear to me in research that I've been doing since I finished the book. So. Uh, the tactic emerged when Saddam Hussein received a bunch of Exocet missiles from the French. Obviously, Iraq was being supported by all of the different world powers. It was receiving all sorts of um, support from the French and the US. And Iranians were receiving underhand support from the US, uh, so arms, uh, via the famous Iran-Contra deal. But it wasn't anything like the Exocet missiles that the, that the um, Saddam was getting. And as the course of the war was going against Iraq, uh, Saddam Hussein began to attack using those missiles, uh, began to attack Iran's shipping installations, not on the mainland, but on the on various islands that are just off the coast of Iran. Um, and then in the process also started attacking ships that were lifting Iranian oil. So they were, they were carrying Iranian oil away. And when Saddam Hussein started doing that, Iran also started responding. Um, and it was interesting because obviously they were attacking the customers of each other's oil, but also in, in, in the case of Iran, attacking the allies, so the Kuwaiti ships. It's interesting because this this whole story, I included it in here because it was fascinating to me the way that it sort of 
highlighted the confluence not only of the war and insurance, for example, this was a moment in which the insurance industry and shipping industry had actually quite a lot of say about policing, about who could go where and what sort of oil could be lifted, etc. But it was also significant because, of course, it encouraged, uh, by then the US was already quite significantly interwoven into the politics of the region because of the US involvement in uh, trying to push back against Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. It had already set up the CENTCOM in response to the Iranian revolution. But the involvement in the tanker wars and reflagging of Kuwaiti tankers to US, to the US flag so as to prevent uh, them being attacked by Iran because Kuwait calculated that if their ships were being flagged by the US, Iran wouldn't want to attack the U.S. because then the U.S. would be actually a party to the war. All of that was quite significant. And all of the different uh, books that I read about it had tallies of the number of attacks. By the end of the war, uh, Saddam had, I think, done about 65% of the attacks, some percentage, uh, quite significantly more than the Iranians had. But in the end, of course, that was one of the tactics that brought in the U.S. and other navies into the Gulf in quite significant sorts of ways. But uh, but but the uh, end of the war was really fought on land and and brought to an end on land. Now all of this is fascinating because in a way it shows the centrality of not just oil installations but actually the shipping of oil in in this kind of a uh, constellation of war tactics and strategies deployed by belligerents in the area. One of the things that I hadn't quite realized. By seeing statistics, you just don't get a sense of how horrific the situation is. Um, I hadn't quite realized how utterly devastating this had been in terms of affecting the seafarers on these ships. Recently, I have been researching in an archive that I didn't have access to because it had not been yet opened uh, when the book came out. And uh, these are archives as yet uncatalogued. So any historians among your listeners will know what the pleasures of that is. Um, it says un- yet uncatalogued archive of the Mission to Seafarers, which is essentially a kind of a religious NGO dealing with the situation of seafarers and their reports from the, the, and there's a Mission to Seafarers in Dubai, there's another one in Bahrain, and the reports that are coming out during the tanker wars out of these missions are utterly harrowing to read. The stories are, you know, if these ships hobbled by uh, bombing and being towed into the shipyards of Dubai or Bahrain. And then the, the sort of the head of the mission to seafarers going to visit these ships. And honest to God, it is some of the most harrowing, horrific things to read about what has happened to some of these seafarers. They have been burnt. Many of them have been blown into the water, literally blown into the water. Some have been killed in one instance, which I'm... Uh, writing about right now and something, actually everybody on the ship that wasn't, that didn't uh, fall out of the ship and was able to be rescued was actually incinerated down to bits. And these are often working class Filipinos, I presume? These are mostly working class Filipinos, but also seafarers. There, there were a lot of actually Eastern European also seafarers on, on board these ships. So but Filipinos, Indians, Indonesians, and, and those are, the, those are the, the ones that you constantly see, you read about in these stories. And then in these reports that I've been 
been reading of the mission to seafarers, what is kind of horrific is how uncaring the shipping companies are. You would think that a ship that has just undergone a massive bombing and where, as you say, working class seafarers from all parts of the world have just had this incredibly traumatic experience, you'd think that the shipping company would be saying, okay, well, let us fly back. But in some instances, they're putting them on other ships to go on to work. And you're just reading this and you're going, my God, we live in a really horrific world. The, the effect, it's, it's interesting because I, as I wrote about the tanker wars, I was drawing on a lot of these sources that looked at it as a geopolitical, as a commercial, um, as, a, as a military, as a strategic event. Um, and now that I'm working on these other missions, it becomes so clear that this was also a human catastrophe of a, a you know, massive scale. Um, and you know, there are seafarers here that are saying, I'm going to go home and I'm going to tell people in my village not to go out and become seafarers. I'm, I'm going to go home and I'm never going to leave again to, to go on, on a ship. Uh, but we, we, di- we didn't hear those stories. Stories, at, at least uh, uh, as far as I can remember, and certainly not in the sources that I used in order to write the book. And so to me, that was what was so horrific about the tanker wars. Um, and, and of course, I knew that there was devastation, but the, but the texture of some of these reports and the stories that are being told are just so awful and so bloody and sanguinary that is just um, that, that really gives you a sense of the, the casualties of war who are not belligerents, who are not parties to the war. I'm Aziz Rana and you're listening to The Dig, a great place for analysis about where we are, how we got here and what can be done. It's my favorite podcast and you can support it at patreon.com. The Dig is produced in conjunction with Jacobin Magazine. These are tough times for publishing, but Jacobin is sticking at it, publishing over 200 original essays every month online and producing the best socialist print magazine in the English language. Jacobin's work is just so vital in creating socialist arguments that can penetrate into the mainstream and, like Marx says, change, not just interpret, the world. But this work is dependent on your support. If you're able, please consider going to jacobinmag.com donate and making a tax-deductible donation today. Regular monthly donations help Jacobin plan even better. That's jacobinmag.com donate. You'll keep Jacobin going in tough times, and Jacobin will be there for you for the struggles to come. You write that the the Red Sea is currently the site of a major competition between regional and global powers, and that, quote, the base competition in the Red Sea and Horn of Africa echoes the European competition over footholds in the Gulf a century ago. It also echoes, I think you suggest, the extension of U.S. control over the Gulf since the Iranian Revolution and over the Indian Ocean since the Soviet Union's collapse. Explain this current conflict over the Red Sea and how it compares to and also perhaps grows out of these prior struggles for maritime dominance. So the Red Sea is a really interesting sea. It's um, it's an incredibly narrow sea. When I was um, steaming down it in the ship that I was going in, you could see both coasts, even on a hazy day. And, wow. and uh, it is an incredibly deep sea as well. And it's one of the saltiest seas in the world. It is because it is actually sitting, the, the Red Sea is essentially on a continental, it's, it's where the continental plates are 
meeting each other up, uh, which is also part of the reason why it's a um, it's rich in actually oil resources uh, as well. Perhaps not as rich as the Gulf, but it is quite significant. You, you, as you're going down to sea, there are all these rigs that are spewing out um, flames, natural gas, etc. Now, part of the reason that it is quite significant is because it is not only on the route to the Suez Canal. Obviously, it's ships that are going from Asia to Europe are going to be passing through Bab al-Mandab, which is the strait uh, between uh, Yemen and uh, Djibouti, and then up the Red Sea to the Gulf of Suez and then on into the Suez Canal. So it is quite significant as a, as a route of transit. But it is also quite significant because, of course, it sits um, on the one side of it is Saudi Arabia. And on the other side of it is a number of different African countries, um, some of which have been involved in conflict, Somaliland in particular, Somalia, Somaliland being quite significant, but also a number of which are now sites of investment and extraction for China and for other uh, competing states. Um, of- the number of bases in Djibouti is unreal. The one. <laughs> it's, it's, and that's precisely why is because they are all protecting. And then, of course, the, you know, the piracy at the beginning of the 21st century was also another reason why this area was so securitized. But the, between piracy, between sort of the extractive economies that have emerged in East Africa, which are quite significant, and the fact that there is also geostrategic projection of power by some of these regional powers, Saudi Arabia and the UAE being actually the most significant one, but also also Turkey. Turkey, and you know, it's new Ottoman kind of fascination or new Ottoman um, inspirations, um, aspirations. All three of these major forces, uh, major uh, local powers are also projecting into East Africa. So what you end up seeing is, you know, bases here and there and everywhere. Djibouti is a particularly interesting one. So Djibouti is a, is an arid little state that used to be a French colony. And uh, it sits uh, in, in an immensely strategically important. It sits right at the sort of the top, uh, edge of the Bab al-Mandab. And so um, when you're going down in a ship in, in the Red Sea, actually the port control that you constantly hear in the wheel room that checks on which ships are coming through, what is you know being transported, et cetera, et cetera, is the, is the Djibouti port control. And one of the interesting things is that Djibouti has, in order to protect itself, I suppose, in order to ensure that it can play off all of these different powers against each other, has actually played a quite amenable host to a number of the world's militaries. The only uh, military base that China, for example, has outside of its own periphery is in Djibouti. Um, the Japanese have a base there, of course, Americans and the um, and the French, of course, have a base there. Interestingly, when I was really wanting to go and I never got around to going and it's a place I really desperately want to visit, one of the funny things was that everybody was telling me, well, if you stay in the Hilton, you'll get to talk to all the Germans because the German military delegation, they don't have a base, but they have a headquarter in the Hilton Hotel and they're hanging out at the pool all the time. Time. And so there, and, and then of course there are others that have various kinds of arrangements. And so Djibouti has has and and, and then of course Saudi Arabia and the UAE have also uh, established beachheads there. And so it, it, it becomes this really heavily securitized place. But then you have ports um, in Sudan and ports in Somaliland and ports in Egypt, where all of these other regional powers are also setting up shop in some ways. Um, and and you know that shows the sort of the alliances and 
enmities in the region, but it also shows the extent to which this kind of an exploitation of the East African economies, both right on both the coastal economies, but also the interior economies, where the material that is being extracted has to be uh, transported through these coastal areas, has become so central to the global economy and also to, 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 to regional uh, contestations over power. Writing about the importance of land-based infrastructure for maritime trade and vice versa, you cite Walter Rodney on Africa. Quote, There were no roads connecting different colonies and different parts of the same colony in a manner that made sense with regard to Africa's needs and development. All roads and railways led down to the sea. How did geopolitics, counterinsurgency, oil, and maritime trade determine the construction of interior transportation infrastructure across the colonial gulf? And today, do all roads in some sense still lead down to the sea? That's a really great question. So first of all, I have to say that Walter Rodney book, any excuse that I can have, it's it's how Europe underdeveloped Africa, any excuse at all to, to cite that, I will. But it is one of the most um, amazing books in part because it is so incredibly lucid about the importance of these land-based infrastructures in colonial extractive economies, in warfare, etc. And so reading how Europe underdeveloped Africa, and actually I teach it all the time in in an infrastructure course that I teach because I think it is enormously significant and, as I said, incredibly lucid and clear about what it does. It becomes clear that a lot of the infrastructure that was built in the colonial times and which sort of advocates of colonialism today trot out every time you talk about the effects of colonialism. Oh, but what about those railways? But what about those roads? (laughs) They really do. (laughs) They really do. Yes, of course they do. Um, But what is fascinating is that if you actually look up and, and your listeners can do this, if they go and um, look up in a search engine, uh, map of colonial railroads, and then look at Google Images or one of the sort of the image uh, searches. And what you'll see is precisely this, that some of these railways actually went from mines to the coast and they completely bypassed population centers in which people lived. And so there was, as in another passage that Rodney talks about, is these roads were built not for Africans to go visit their friends, but it was precisely so that they could be extracted and also for troops to move along them. So this is also this was also the case in India, although to a lesser extent for a variety of different reasons. But but it but it but it certainly was also the case in uh, the Arabian Peninsula. So it was fascinating, for example, to see that uh, the uh, main railway that that was operating in the Arabian Peninsula until very very recently was the uh, was from Dammam to Riyadh. And in part, um, it was built by through the offices of Aramco, which was a kind of, if you will, um, a modern day equivalent of the East India Company. Really, I, it's that's the best kind of example that you can give. Uh, the U.S. equivalent. The U.S. equivalent, of course, yes, um, because it was originally the Standard Oil of California that set it up. Standard Oil of California today, Chevron, and you know, the, the Aramco built this road because it was strong-armed into doing so, and in part because they wanted to build Riyadh as a kind of a capital for the Al Saud. Uh, and so this this railroad that transported um, construction goods um, and various other kinds of needs from the coast into Riyadh was built. And it was never extended, for example, to Jeddah, which was 
the single most important city in Saudi Arabia at the time. So um, it's really interesting that the kinds of calculations that went into the building of these had very little to do with the local economic needs. And it often had to do with bolstering, A, the power of the local clients, um, and B, for extractive purposes. So the roads that were built in Saudi Arabia, similarly by Aramco, similarly ran, for example, between the um, different sites of extraction of oil, between the different oil fields, and for example, the the cities, towns, barracks that housed the workers. Um, That was also the case in Kuwait. That was also the case in Bahrain. Um, That was certainly the case in United Arab Emirates, which was actually quite shocking. A a PhD uh, student at NYU wrote an amazing PhD about the roads in Bahrain, Matthew McLean, in which he talks about how uh, in order to get a road built in uh, the UAE that went beyond the kinds of needs that the British uh, evinced, the uh, local rulers had to actually get the support of Gamal Abdel Nasser and play off Egypt against Saudi Arabia in order to get a road funded. And it's also quite striking that if you actually follow the mileage of road built, roads built after uh, the nationalization of oil in some of these places, and after these emirates on the coast um, end up their end their protectorate agreements with the British, it becomes very clear that you have massive infrastructure construction after that point. Until that point, the the uh, British and the Americans via Aramco and the various oil companies there simply weren't interested in that kind of road construction. In Oman, if any roads were built, it was in order to allow for troops to travel uh, along these routes and to put down an uh, extraordinary insurgency by leftist guerrillas in Oman and also to protect the oil installations in the desert in the interior of Oman. So in each of these instances, what you see is that these land-based um, uh, infrastructures that supported transport, that supported uh, the transport of cargo to and from the sea and or the transport of troop to and from the sea, um, really followed the model that um, uh, Walter Rodney writes about in How Europe Underdeveloped Africa. The ownership of shipping and port companies is extraordinarily complex, intertwined and confusing ways and very transnational. You cite as one example CMA-CGM, the world's third largest shipping company. It's based in Marseille, France, owned by a Lebanese-French family, and it exists in its current form due to the privatization of the formerly state-owned French shipping firm CGM. Globally, it operates in a so-called alliance with the Shanghai-based China Shipping Container Lines and the UAE-based United Arab Shipping Company. And the latter, I think, is partly owned by the Qatar and and Saudi Arabian governments. Meanwhile, CMA-CGM has a longstanding relationship with this enormous port management company, DP World, which in turn is owned, I think at least in part, by Dubai's ruling family. But DP World, in a twist, has its roots in part in the U.S.-based firm that first managed Dubai's Jabal Ali port. Why are shipping and port industries structured in this way? How does it compare to other capitalist industries? And what do those corporate structures reveal about those industries' place within the world system today and about those companies and industries' long histories dating back to the colonial era? One of the 
the things that's really, really striking about shipping companies today is the extent to which it's dominated by family-owned or private businesses. So a lot of these are, are state-owned. In, in the case of a lot of the East Asian um, shipping companies, they're state-owned. And what is really striking is that there are very few of these shipping companies that are actually on any kind of public stock market, um, a publicly traded stock market. That, to me, is really fascinating. And it, it, is, it has been in the character of the shipping industry to be so incredibly uh, focused on the families. And as you mentioned, CMACGM is, for example, owned by a Lebanese French family, the second largest shipping company in the world, uh, which is uh, also in Europe, is owned by an Italian one. Maersk, which is the largest shipping company in the world, is owned by a Danish family. Um, and what happens with these kinds of private ownership structures and, and these incredibly complex networks of connections and alliances and port management deals and things like that is that... Um, a lot of it is completely and totally untransparent. A lot of those relations are really difficult to excavate, to understand, to analyze, to be able to figure out exactly who benefits. Obviously, the owners benefit, but to, 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 to exactly figure out exactly how the division, how the profits are divided very significantly, and this became clear um, in the ever given condition, who is going to be held responsible. So a ship a shipping company such as CMA CGM might be owned by a French family of Lebanese origin based out of Marseille, but their major hub of operation is in Malta and their ships are flagged to all of the different flags of the world. And I think that's actually a really important thing to talk about when we're talking about ownership. Yeah, these flags of convenience, I kind of knew they existed because it I, I knew vaguely that a lot of companies flew under a Panamanian flag or whatever, but what you describe is unreal. Yeah, uh, it's. I think some. I think nearly half of the world's ships actually fly under flags of convenience, and what what that means is that the flag that a ship flies uh, is essentially the flag of the country whose laws it has to follow. Open registries or flags of convenience are registries in countries which do not necessarily have their own uh, shipping industry. In fact, for example, Mongolia, which is a landlocked uh, country, has a flag of convenience. I know, isn't that great? We know that what flags of convenience means is that um, the ships that follow those flags are not really uh, held to e extremely high standards when it comes to labor regulations or environmental regulations. Um, tax payments are minimal. Insurance requirements are dire. Um, and there's a whole lot of other ways ways in which these flags of convenience actually allow for shipping companies to save money on wages, et cetera, et cetera, um, inspections, you name it. And so a shipping company such as CMACGM will have ships that are flagged to European flags, in part because those ships are touching on on uh, European ports, but also because of deals and tax breaks that European countries provide, for example, so that uh, these shipping companies fly some of their flags. But a lot of their ships are actually flagged to these flags of convenience, Panama, Liberia, and Marshall Islands being some of the most significant ones, the three biggest ones. So it means that if something goes wrong, you will not actually necessarily know who to hold responsible. Because also, the shipping companies don't necessarily own all of the ships that they operate. So, uh, for example, Ever Given, which 
ended up getting stuck in uh, the Suez Canal was operated by Evergreen, which is a Taiwan-based shipping company, but it was owned by a Japanese uh, ship owner. It flew the flag of Panama and its crew were all Indian. And so you have this incredibly international deal. Now, Evergreen has its own deals. It prefers some ports over others because of the port management companies that run those ports. CMACGM has a deal with Dubai Ports World, so it goes to a lot of uh, DP, DP World managed ports. Maersk is a parent company, actually, of APM terminals, and so they prefer to go to ports that are managed by APM terminals. And these ports that are managed by APM terminals are in all sorts of places, Salala Oman is, for example, one of them. And so what you end up having is, again, these incredibly complex ownership and alliance deals, which make attaching responsibility, accountability, uh, transparency onto any of these actors incredibly difficult. You write that DP World's 2006 acquisition of the British P&O, the famed Peninsular and Oriental Steam Navigation Company, that it signified, quote, the passing of the capitalist baton from a company so identified with the British imperial venture to a firm embodying state-owned transnational enterprise. It's a fascinating story. What does that moment say about the geographic transformation of capitalism, both both globally and more particularly on the Arabian Peninsula? What did P&O mean for colonial power and what did its purchase by Dubai's DP World reveal about the geographically complex and and shifting nature of capitalist power in the post-colonial world? So PNO is an interesting instance because PNO is kind of the equivalent of the CGM that you were mentioning earlier. It was an enormously important, although it was not state-owned in Britain, but nevertheless, it was an enormously important um, shipping company for Britain's imperial ventures out in Asia. Interestingly, the peninsula and Orient that it has, it, it has in its name is not Orient as in China, not peninsula as in peninsula, Arabian Peninsula, but peninsula as in the Iberian Peninsula and Orient being Eastern Mediterranean. So that was, the, but but that's also interesting. The Near Orient. Because, yes, the Near Orient. But that was also part of the reason was because of the ways in which the British, of course, were interested in that um, Mediterranean contestation, which I mentioned earlier was a was a factor in uh, the digging of the Suez Canal in the eighteen uh, in in mid nineteenth century. Now. The piano was important because it was a mail ship. So mail ships were uh, in in the time where you didn't have, for example, not even telegraph yet. Uh, but even after the coming of the telegraph, mail ships were enormously important for communication, for imperial communication across the world's oceans. Um, and a lot of shipping companies sought these incredibly lucrative mail contracts with imperial states precisely because those mail uh, contracts could guarantee that they um, could sail in either direction direction without actually losing any money doing so. But it also consolidated the power of those imperial. In, in, in a way, it was a kind of a public-private partnership, if you will, between the imperial states of Europe and these private firms that performed these functions. And then PNO, over the course of the subsequent centuries, and as Telegraph ended up becoming much more significant than mail ships, although mail ships did not cease to be important until the 20th century, 
even mid 20th century. Nevertheless, these piano actually expanded the domain of the kinds of things it was involved in. It sort of um, ended up acquiring passenger transport. It ended up acquiring, uh, once oil became a factor, it ended up acquiring tankers. It had a whole lot of different businesses. And it eventually also ended up acquiring a bunch of port management. It, it ended up acquiring lots of ports. And so the 2006, if uh, your listeners, the slightly older listeners, remember the 2006 kind of debate in the US over the Dubai ports world. Bipartisan freakout. Total. Actually, <laughs> Hillary Clinton and Chuck Schumer were at the heart of that. But what is interesting about that, what, what you mention is, is that there is a shift happening here. So once the empire ends, the PNO becomes unmoored from that kind of a imperial or colonial function that it had performed for such a long time in the service of the British Empire. It ends up becoming a kind of a post-imperial remnant, which there are a lot of in this country. And in some ways, uh, it also shows, it illuminates the way that it's passing uh, passing of certain parts of the company into the hands of Dubai Ports World uh, signals the way that capital's location has now shifted ex- across the waters to some of these uh, places that used to be imperial outposts and which are now themselves sorts of sources of emanation of capital themselves. And to me, that was particularly interesting for, because it was so, so illustrative of the, these fluctuations, these shifts, these movements of capital in the, in the uh, post-colonial age. Um, although, of course, the empire matters still. What was also funny about the piano thing was that the British were quite unsentimental about these bits of it going to the um, Dubai ports world. And it's, uh, the New York Times was actually kind of horrified that such a significant company so identified with a the crown British jewel empire. Of the empire. <laughs> yeah, something like that would actually be bought up by, quote unquote, the natives. Yeah, they didn't use that term. But, but you know, it was, it was kind of like, how dare they buy this crown jewel of the empire? And so, so there was also this kind of a funny way in which New York Times was, uh, was, was more uh, fighting for the honor of the British empire and its remnants than the British were at that stage. Even amid the rise of bigger and bigger ships and these absolutely gargantuan shipping companies, there's still a huge role for small ships called DAOs. What are DAOs? How long have they been around? And why do they still today have such an important place in an era of maritime capitalism defined by mega shipping? That's a really excellent question. So in the 19th century, DAOs were built out of wood. They were locally shaped ships, uh, locally uh, designed and shaped ships. They were they had um, kind of rounded bodies with really beautiful prows, and they had Latin sails, so um, triangular sails. Um, and they were often, um, they, were, they were sailing ships, and they were often operated by seafarers from the Indian Ocean Basin. Uh, some of the best DAOs were constructed on the coast of Iran uh, in Kuwait, actually, um, and also in on the coasts of what is today Pakistan, it was then India, so the western coasts of um, the Indian Empire, but also on the eastern coast of Africa. And these DAOs plied, plied the tr- uh, trade essentially across the Indian Ocean in these particular sort of regional areas. They sailed with the monsoon and they transported lots of different goods and um, timber, uh, anything that needed to be transported, rice, um, food and people from place to place. 
And what is really interesting that, um, of course, this form of business has not been uh, displaced uh, by the mega shipping. And in fact, if anything, it has flourished alongside it, in part because there are forms of shipping that are just too expensive to conduct the kind of a motorized, international, sort of modernized forms of uh, shipping for. So uh, short distances, coastal trade, smaller cargoes, etc. Um, but in part also because these uh, DAOs have uh, motorized, um, they uh, operate in, as I said, in shorter distances. They kind of work alongside to distribute some of the goods that are brought in into these uh, mega ports and they distribute them um, either in very smaller radiuses from the um, from the megaports or further on along the coast, or they bring in cargoes that are very much localized cargoes. So if you look up videos of these, some of these DAOs arriving, um, for example, sheep are brought over from uh, Somalia for slaughter into uh, some of the ports in the Arabian Peninsula. It used to be timber, used to be, you know, locally produced products. Now it is, you know, uh, big things of rice or noodles, big bags of rice and noodles or toilet paper or notebooks or the kinds of goods that are produced locally in some places or brought in on some of these big ships and sent alongside. And interestingly, um, when at the end of the 19th century and beginning, and especially in the 20th century, the big European shipping firms actually um, ended up controlling a lot of the shipping of the sort of the both passengers and of cargo in a lot of the Indian Ocean Basin, um, those kinds of the, the DAOs ended up picking up the slack back then as well. So, so there has been a kind of a continuous uh, relationship between the DAOs and European or larger mechanized forms of shipping where both smaller distances smaller volumes of product, much more localized forms of trade are serviced much more cheaply by these DAOs um, alongside the bigger, higher volume, more mechanized, longer distance forms of trade that the bigger shipping companies engage in. Let's turn to, to labor. You write that dock worker, Steve Adoring, performed in the U.S. by people known as workers known as longshoremen, was from very early on in the Gulf contracted, casualized, and multinational. And those docks were relatedly, you write, slow to containerize. How did the organization of, of dock work and the pace of automation relate to one another? And how did that history shape what you write as is the, quote, racialized articulation of class relations unmistakable in the work of Peninsula Ports today? So um, it's really interesting because um, earlier when I was talking about the um, sort of the rise of the box of the container ship, uh, sorry, of the container in, in the ports and the way that that changed the labor complexion of uh, the industrialized world's ports and particularly in the US, one of the things that was really striking about that was that this was a kind of an ostensibly commercial technology, but which was uh, really at heart deeply political in, in the way that it managed to actually automate many of these ports and um, put a lot of stevedores, longshoremen out of their jobs. The tactics used to suppress labor in the Arabian Peninsula was were far more coercive 
those technologies that kind of uh, allowed for suppression of labor through non-coercive means in the North Atlantic were not necessary because coercion was what could so easily be used in the ports um, of the Arabian Peninsula and also elsewhere in the global south. And so what is often in operation there is cheap uh, labor uh, whose wages are kept low through a combination of coercive means and racialized hierarchies. So a, a form of racial capitalism, if you will, where class is articulated through these racial hierarchies and these racial hierarchies are used to suppress wages. And so what, so, so those become that, that uh, direct violence become incredibly effective means of putting down uh, stevedore power, which can be quite disruptive. What is really striking is that despite the degree of coercion, that there was such a ferment of labor mobilization in places which, when if I say today, if I say their names today, people will only associate them with this kind of a uh, hugely oppressed labor. Qatar was a, an unbelievable source of ferment on its docks. Abu Dhabi was another place. In these places, when strikes would happen, the British would start worrying that it was the Kuwaiti workers that were causing transnational mobilization across the waters of the Gulf. These places had incredibly vibrant multinational, at the time mostly Arab in the 1950s and 60s, uh, but Arabs from elsewhere, uh, workforces. And they engaged in both workplace and political forms of uh, strike and disruption all the time. And the systems brought in to suppress them were not only hugely violent police intervention, but also passing of laws, for example, in Saudi Arabia, which banned any form of uh, unionization, strikes, any form of protest. But in addition to that, um, one of the things that I write about, and which was an incredible find, was the British Labour attaché, who very casually talks about how the way to actually stop this forms of intra-Arab solidarity in workplaces in the Gulf was to bring in workers from other places who didn't speak Arabic and whose states were, would not necessarily defend them in the same way that, for example, the Arab nationalist states would uh, at that time. And he casually mentions this process of engineering the, the complexion of labor there in order to make it more uh, deportable, in order to make it less protected. Um, and that to me was absolutely striking and really quite devastating actually to read about it. Yeah. Throughout the region, you write Palestinians, Ye Yemenis, Somalis, Iraqis, all known for being labor agitators, Arab nationalist agitators, communist agitators. But then you sketch this shift that you were just alluding to from this sort of radical labor cosmopolitanism and internationalism of the anti-colonial era to an even more diverse ports workforce of today that's deeply segmented along national lines and politically marginalized. How did that shift from one racialized labor migration regime to another take place? So passports and border control have always been incredibly effective means of attenuating and containing forms of labor, transnational labor mobilization and solidarity. So that was obviously one very simple way that they could do so. They would put quotas on the number of workers that came from one country or another country. But another was, um, as I mentioned earlier, was the was a very specific and actually deliberate labor engineering by uh, by the British um, who who were in charge of a lot of these uh, Gulf places and in the U.S. Uh, 
by Americans in Saudi Arabia of bringing in workers from states which uh, were desperately dependent on remittances, such as um, India or Pakistan or Bangladesh, and who did not necessarily speak the same language as one another, and certainly didn't speak in many instances Arabic. And so they actually had to, English ended up becoming the lingua franca of many of these workplaces. And of course, the moment that English becomes a lingua franca of these places, those places become also uh, open to surveillance and control and discipline. Whereas if you had, for example, Arabic speakers, but you have managers that that are English, there is going to be a sort of certain degree of ability to mobilize outside the hearing of of those managers. That was a very deliberate shift that happens at the end of the 1960s and early 1970s. The other shifts that are happening also is, of course, passing of laws that ban unions in some places or heavily circumscribe the, the possibilities of union operations in other places. So, for example, in Bahrain and Kuwait, Unions can only operate in state-owned enterprises. They cannot. They cannot recruit in private workplaces, and they cannot recruit among migrant um, workers, which is the majority of the working class in these countries. And what's really amazing is in the 1960s, the Kuwaiti unions that were actually trying to unionize, they were trying to lobby to be able to recruit among migrant workers, and the British. Um, specifically got together with the ruling family and uh, stopped that. And in one of these labor attache archival documents, they specifically write that these, um, these Kuwaiti workers are saying that if we don't allow them to uh, organize among the migrant workers, that it's going to create an apartheid system. They literally used the term, the Kuwaiti activists and organizers said that if they could not recruit migrant workers, an apartheid labor system would emerge. They were incredibly astute analysts of their own situation. And of course, the laws did not allow them to do so. And so and a, so a, a, a kind of a quasi-apartheid labor regime has actually been functioning there and has allowed for the accumulation of capital in the particular ways that it has in those Gulf countries. Writing about dock worker labor organizing, you write, quote, Aden, more than any other city on the peninsula, was the stage on which labor revolt illuminated the contours of labor formation and disciplining mechanisms used by the state, the empire, and by capital to contain it. But writing about a series of strikes there in 1948, you write, quote, politics for the strikers extended to what happened in the broader Arab world. This was even more urgent for dock workers who work at the very boundaries of their state, experiencing the materiality of international trade in their hands, on their backs, in what they unloaded. How did these region-wide struggles over colonialism, Arab nationalism, monarchical rule, express themselves in Aden in particular, but also throughout the entire region as labor struggles? And then how did rulers and capitalists respond? So Aden is a particularly interesting case because it was the only place that was directly colonized on the Arabian Peninsula. The, the arrangement that the British had, which were colonial arrangements with the Gulf Emirates, were actually protectorates, whereas Aden was a direct colony and it was actually ruled directly by Britain. So one of the things that was interesting about that was that from the very first, any form of labor mobilization that happened in Aden itself had an anti-colonial tinge to it, in part because so many of the businesses that operated both on the dock 
stocks and uh, there were oil-related businesses, but also others were actually there courtesy of the British. So there were also businesses that were owned, for example, by Indian capitalists, by um, uh, a famous French capitalist, Antonin Besse, who was a representative of Shell Oil Company there. Uh, Really quite a colorful figure who, um, before dying, actually donated a bunch of money and set up St. Anthony's College at Oxford um, in his own name. But these figures were all there and they were supported and protected by the British Empire. And so any form of labor organization that happened in those places targeted them, targeted the workplace, but also targeted the empire. In addition to that, of course, um, I uh, we talked earlier about the nationalization of the Suez Canal in subsequent years after 1948, what you found was that every time there was a kind of a colonial skirmish, often on the borders of Egypt, but also around Palestine, there would be mass mobilization in these workplaces. So for many of these workers, they were deeply aware of the fact that their work was not only their struggles were not only about struggle, not not only about workplace uh, problems, not only about a long work date or extremely sort of derisory wages, but also about the role that they could play in transforming the politics of the region. In Aden, this was about anti-colonial struggles. This was about a move towards a republic in many instances, actually later after 1948, about a socialist republic. In many of these other places in Qatar and Abu Dhabi, whenever there, there, there were these forms of strike, there were actually discussions of these places turning to, to, to be made into republics. There were direct calls for the abolishing of monarchies and establishing of um, democratic rule. And in every instance, the British and the Americans actually suppressed those kinds of movements and supported the most repressive forces in there. The one moment where the the British were directly defeated, of course, was in Aden, where they were forced out of um, the colonial arrangement in 1967 and 68. And then as a punishment, of course, then Aden suffered again and again and again through a whole series of different methods, whether it was sanctions or military kind of force since then because of that. But what one does see is the way that these workers, again, despite the fact that many were illiterate, despite the fact that many of them until much later did not necessarily have a theoretical language to discuss Men do, though many of them later became Marxists and Arab nationalists and whatnot, but many of them knew they had an astute and deeply intelligent analysis of their condition, and they realized that they could not absolutely could not separate the conditions under which they worked day to day from the political system which maintained the power of those corporations over them, which was a colonial power, from the kinds of skirmishes and struggles that were going on in the immediate region, but also in in, in the global south. And, And that kind of an analysis is, I think, something that has been lost a lot with a lot of the focus on forms of unionization or forms of mobilization that focus really deeply on the very local without an attention to the way in which these kinds of operations really throughout since the beginning of the 20th century have never operated in isolation from broader social relations that extend far beyond national boundaries. Let's close by talking about work at sea. As you write, quote, an autonomous, self-constituted, sovereign working class is as far from the hierarchies of ships as one can imagine. What is work and lifelike for seafarers? And what forms of labor make a big ship run? And then how are those different sorts of labor organized and controlled by rank, by race, and by nationality? 
ships have from the very first been some of the most oppressive, repressive, hierarchical, and coercive environments um, ever. Marcus Redeker's histories of seafaring in you know the 18th, 19th century will tell you how horrendous this were uh, the, the working conditions were back then. The captain has always been the sovereign of his ship, and you actually read about that in Melville's work and in which you know that all sorts of atrocities are often meted out by the officers onto their crew historically today there are obviously limits and regulations on sort of for example flogging of um, seafarers and certainly in most instances seafarers are not pressed into service the way that they were in much of the history of seafaring actually in a lot of the in, in a lot of the world but one of one of the things that one finds is also that their power has also reduced radically so the ability to mutiny for example has reduced radically in part because their numbers aboard ships have reduced so radically so a ship that a, a much smaller ship than any of the ones that are operating today in the 19th uh, when when it was operating in the 19th Century would have something like 200 seafarers, 200, 400 seafarers on it. One of the biggest ships that I was on at the time that I was on it, it was the biggest ship um, out to sea. It had 35 people and five of those people were passengers. So four of those people were passengers, me and two other women and the wife of the captain were passengers on that. Ever Given, which was one of the largest ships in the world, had 25 crew members on it. And so it is kind of extraordinary that a, that a ship that is as big as the Empire State Building laid on its side is only operating with 25 people. Those 25 people are divided essentially into three categories of workers. There are the officers who are in the wheel room, and then there are the officers and workers who work in the engine room, and then there are the, off- the, and then there are the crew members that work in, on deck. And the work that they do is very distinct. So the the, uh, officers in the wheel room are in charge of essentially navigating the ship and ensuring that it is operating. But they're also in charge of sort of the bureaucracy and the paperwork of the ships. It's rather amazing how much bureaucracy there is associated with this. The, um, the, The crew members who work on deck have to do things like, for example, check to make sure if it's a container ship, check to make sure that, for example, refrigerated containers um, are still functioning if they are on, uh, for example, oil or gas carriers to ensure that the pressure of the liquid that is being carried or the gas that is being carried um, is okay. So there's a lot of kind of maintaining of the cargo. But in addition to that, they also have to make sure that the ship uh, is in ship shape. Um, Essentially, Rust, de-rusting the hull and painting it. As soon as you've finished one round, you have to start again and repaint the whole thing because you have to make sure that the ship is maintained in such a way that doesn't rust or get holes in it. Um, and the uh, and the and the officers and crew members who work in the engine room have to ensure that the engine is functioning. And of course, it's extraordinary because there are these incredibly complex engines. And essentially, the the people who are working in the engine room are kind of artisans who have to use ordinary tools in order to make this incredibly complex engine work. The work is extremely hard and tedious. Um, and the shifts that they have to work are 
incredibly uh, long and the contracts under which they work, especially crew members, are quite long contracts. So a crew member is can work an 11-month contract and then has a month off or two months off and then comes back on. Um, officers tend to have slightly shorter contracts, so four months on and one month off. But by and large, these are incredibly long periods of time to be away from their families. And until a few years back, they also didn't have Wi-Fi. Now Wi-Fi, satellite connections, are now being pretty much spread across all ships, uh, or most ships, I should say. Um, But imagine just being at sea for 11 months and the only time that you can actually connect to your family is when you arrive into port. Um, So, And and then, of course, those arrival and departures from ports are also incredibly intense because they require all hands on deck. A lot of the cliches of speaking, by the way, have come from uh, shipping. So all hands on deck, shipping, ship shape, etc. But... um, but they do require incredibly intense attentiveness. And so you have these moments of punctuations of incredibly intense work when you're in port, and then moments of tedium and backbreaking and extremely routine, routinized work that is nevertheless extremely hard and quite difficult for the rest of the time. It is incredibly hard work. And on a ship, as I said, the size of Empire State Building, where there are only 25 workers in it, it never ends. And then because of automation on the one hand and the relocation of automated ports farther away from city centers on the other, the more romantic side of being a seafarer, going into town and getting drunk and having an interesting time is less and less possible. Yes, that is that has become one of the significant. Uh, it's it's the fact that ports are now moving further and further out of town. So Jabal Ali, for example, is about forty miles from the center of town. Actually, if you look at, for example, Los Angeles and Long Beach, although there are some really lovely areas just right around Los Angeles and Long Beach, but if you wanted to go to sort of population centers, you'd have to go further into town. In uh, in the port of New York, the actual port is in Elizabeth, which takes at least about an hour to get in into New York City. And so in all of, and Marseille, 40 miles, in in most of these places, the ports have actually moved so far out of town that it becomes really quite expensive and difficult to go from where the the seafarers disembark to the city centers. But in addition to that, because of sort of US requirements and other forms of requirements, there has been an increase in securitization. So it takes much longer, for example, for seafarers to get out of the port area itself, which is an international area. And clear passport control or whatever clear passport or identification control, it takes much longer. And so sometimes if your turnaround time for your ship is only 18 hours and it's going to take you an hour to drive into the city and an hour to come back and it takes you four hours to get off the ship, you're not going to want to go out to the, you know, to the city. And so this has also really radically reduced the amount of leisure times that these seafarers have when they come into land, which makes it all again much more complex and difficult. And, and the fact is also that dual wage regimes have also arrived aboard these ships, which means that many of these seafarers, as I said earlier, they act according to, they work according to different contracts. Uh, They have also different wage regimes. So seafarers, for example, coming from the global south will get paid at a different rate than seafarers that are coming from the global north, from Europe, even on the margins of Europe. And so that has also generates, obviously, forms of division on board the ship, which which prevents forms of solidarity. So you have backbreaking work, very little leisure time at land, and kind of these divisions and fissures which operate according to national boundaries um, and, and, of course, wage rates. Which which have really resulted in forms of discipline aboard ships. It's um, uh, intensification of forms of discipline aboard ships. Yeah, you write, quote, 
Ships have always been international spaces, with sailors of many nations working together. Today's internationalization is different. A vessel can be owned by Greeks, chartered by a French shipping company, flagged to Liberia, officered by Chinese or Eastern Europeans, and staffed by Filipinos. Does today's new kind of bleaker maritime internationalism, does it offer any sort of hope or possibility for solidarity and organizing? My sense is that unless new and innovative forms of mobilization emerge that go beyond the workplace and connect the seafarers to communities and to other kinds of categories of workers, for example, dockers, the the ship itself does not necessarily offer an environment conducive to political organization. I, I talk about this whenever I give a talk, but there was a insurance company called the Strike Club, which insured shipping companies against strikes, um, both at uh, the docks and also on board the ships. It has now been bought um, up by another insurance company, so it's called Standard Club. And the, back when they were Strike Club, they put out a brochure, they put out a newsletter every every month, every couple of months, and you could actually subscribe to it. And then they, they tracked how many strikes were happening where as you know, as information for their clients, as information for their members. And one of the things that was striking, no pun intended, <laughs> for the entire time that I actually subscribed to that newsletter, there were hundreds of strikes on docks and none on board ships. So that says something, I think, about the way that forms of discipline have been incredibly successful in suppressing forms of worker mobilization. Well, Lala Khalili, thank you very much. My pleasure. It has been so lovely. Lala Khalili is a professor of international politics at Queen Mary University of London and the author of Sinews of War and Trade, Shipping and Capitalism in the Arabian Peninsula. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that, the more developed the capital, the more extensive the market over which it circulates, which forms the spatial orbit of its circulation, the more does it strive simultaneously for an even greater extension of the market and for greater annihilation of space by time. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Izzy Olive. Our senior advisor is Thea Rio Francos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If you subscribe on iTunes or whatever such platform, please also leave us a glowing, nice, friendly review. Those reviews do something or other to help introduce us to new listeners. But what really and truly does that is just you spreading the word about the show to your friends, family, whoever. Please make propaganda for us. And do, last but not least, find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to help keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks is huge. Mm-hmm.